Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and I'm glad to be back with you today in this post-election world uh, to bring you another edition of the show, but also to focus on some critical things and some reflections on what's happening so far and, and some larger thoughts today to, to kind of challenge you to reflect on what is happening and the significance of some of the things that we see happening around us as we continue to see that 2020 is a very, very unique year. There are just so many things happening uh, that have not happened in specific ways. We're talking about the pandemic or uh, the election or the post-election as we continue to see some interesting developments there. But I want to welcome you to the show. I want to also direct you to the fact that in addition to being here on uh, KTRL 90.5 FM every Sunday at noon, you can listen to us online at tarletonradio.com at the same time, or you can catch us after the show or go back and look at previous uh, shows that, that we've offered via podcasts, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts are available, but also on SoundCloud. So SoundCloud is where the show goes after we air, and it's available to you to listen uh, during the week uh, as you have time. So to get into our topic today, I, I want to bring in what may seem like at first uh, another uh, focus or point of focus or discipline even that we're moving away from politics here. Uh, but I uh, heard an interview this past week with Dr. Jim Ludis, uh, who is at the Pell Center, the director of the Pell Center, discussing this. And I went and looked for his uh, opinion piece that he wrote. And out of that, there were a couple of things that I wanted to point out to you today and to just to get us to thinking about some of the things that are happening, some of the things that we see happening, both in terms of the pandemic and also the election. And his opinion piece, and I have posted it to On Politics with Eric Morrow on Facebook, his opinion piece focuses on the impact of the Copernican Revolution. Okay, so we're going back to Copernicus, the, the, the astronomer who really turned everything upside down when through the use of, of, of data, through the use of instruments, transitioned our understanding of our galaxy and really of the universe from what had been centered around the earth to what is referred to as a heliocentric understanding that, that, that our galaxy, uh, that the earth moves around the sun. And so while there had been previous theories and ideas about this, uh, here, here we are at, 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 in his time period in, in the 16th century, where he goes against what is considered the, the, the accepted knowledge of the time and knowledge that while it had not necessarily been scientifically proved, but it was, it was foundational knowledge that was a point of reference for existence, for understanding our place in the universe and so on. And all of a sudden here, he, and looking at this and analyzing it and using really the beginnings of scientific method uh, that will lead to a scientific revolution here, that the role of science and it's setting the foundations for modern science will, will begin to happen because now he's looking at it from evidence-based to say that, no, the earth is not the center. The universe and the galaxy does not revolve around the earth. It revolves, the earth revolves around the sun. And so what happens here is it sets in motion and what will follow in the, uh, the, 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 years and, and of course the centuries that follow will be the more and more uh, of reliance on scientific method, on discovery, on research, on evidence uh, to, to determine fact, to determine uh, the understanding, that, to provide the knowledge base that gives us the understanding of the world around us. And so this has had a tremendous influence on our world and, and specifically on uh, the developments of Western thought, Western civilization, in using the, the methods of science in order to investigate, in order to form hypotheses, in order to uh, do research, to experiment, and to come to conclusions 
knowing too, as we look back on the development of science and the development of the scientific method, that it, it leaves room for uh, transition and change or updating once uh, new hypotheses are formed, once there's a new phenomenon, once something happens. And so we've seen that as well, that it's not always about the final word, but that that as we get inf more information, as we get more uh, data, as we think more about this, and then there's ex experimentation, and then there's a reliance on evidence in order to come to conclusions that are based on known fact. Expanding that foundation of knowledge, but from that foundation of knowledge, still moving forward, questioning, researching, experimenting, and coming to uh, conclusions. And so this is what Dr. Ludus focuses on in his article, his opinion piece in relationship to some of the things that we see going on around us related both to the pandemic and to the election. And going back to Copernicus, he leads us forward in what he says here to the what Copernicus began and then what was furthered by Bra and Kepler and others who over years of observations, over years of collecting evidence, were able to establish the three laws of planetary uh, motion, a, a huge, a tremendous kind of foundational part of astronomy and, and of science. And this period in which they lived laid the foundation for the modern world in supplanting faith or just belief. Okay, I believe this because I, I heard it or because what I see as an authority told me this. And in some cases, this was religion or the church. In some cases, this was uh, political leaders or authorities or monarchs. Uh, but it was the, the acceptance of this based on what was said, not on evidence, not on reason, not on engaging with the questions and then trying to find a way to get the facts, to show based on evidence, based on experimentation, uh, what uh, reality, what that knowledge should be. And so after Copernicus, the, the two centuries that follows, as he points out, philosophers pondered whether science and reason should replace orthodoxy in every aspect of human life, including law and governance. And this is where then we have people who come along like John Locke uh, that, that grapple with this, the questions of, of what do we know? How do we know and what do we know? And how do, in, in epistemology here, the question is, how do we know what we know? And what is the foundation of that knowledge? And Locke points out in his essay concerning human understanding uh, where he advanced the argument that all ideas and all knowledge are derived from human experience uh, and that we have to look at that experience, we have to analyze it, we have to, and this is at the core of the work of social science, uh, we have to engage with it and we have to experiment, we have to come to conclusions, we have to test, test those hypotheses that then lead us to those conclusions. And, and this is the, the mode in which we have functioned, uh, in which we've advanced science, in which we advanced technology, our understanding of the world uh, and the universe uh, that we live in. And this is what led to the American and French revolutions. They sprang from this intellectual and political ferment and with them the language of individual rights, the idea that governments are instituted to protect liberties and serve the common good, not the interest of the king, while they draw their authority to rule their very sovereignty, not from divine right, but from the consent of the people. And so we see this being really challenged today, and I think this is what Ludus points out, and this is what I want to point out as well, uh, is that here at a time when we have evidence being presented to us, when we have the actual work of science leading to vaccines for COVID, uh, when we have the engagement with an election process and with the data that it has present us, presented to us, and we have an outcome before us, we, we still see people who, who, who don't believe, they don't accept this. They're, they're, they're listening to what they're being told, that COVID is not real, as they're being intubated and as they're they're dying from this, 
people actually saying that and not accepting it. Or in the same way, in the sense that we've seen in, in this post-election time, the challenges of people accepting the outcome. And, and yes, when we look back at previous elections, the, the people who, who voted for a candidate that loses, they're, they're not happy. But again, we move forward on the basis of the data. We move forward on the basis of the process and the outcome. That still leaves room to question and raise concerns about the process, places where uh, issues may arise because of election process that's not functioning the way it should. But, but we have a means to do that. We have a means to conduct a, a, an election, and then if it's very close, to do a recount. We have the courts in order for uh, concerns that are not being addressed by authorities that appear to be there to address those. But again, it, it requires evidence. It, it's not just what people say. It's not just what people believe and what they want to happen. It, it has to be shown by evidence. And so the concern here that Ludus has, and I've expressed this before, but I also very much agree with him uh, that, that we're we're in dangerous territory here. We're in a dangerous area when we, we no longer are, are willing to accept evidence. We're no longer willing to look at the data and the facts that we're no longer to, willing to look at a qualitative outcome. So numbers, ballots that can be recounted, our belief, or we're no longer able to look at what people are taking with knowledge and experience experiments and so forth to come through with a vaccine for this pandemic, because that's not what we believe. That, that's the challenge, that, that people actually don't believe it's real, or they don't believe that that could be the outcome. And that's, that's very challenging, especially in a Republican form of government, small r there, not, not party, but Republican, which means that we have a foundation in the law. And that law, what does the law require? It requires proof. It requires evidence. Uh, it, it means that we, we vest our hopes in the educated and reasonable judgment of the people, and that we have to agree on basic knowable facts uh, in order to move forward and to, to pursue outcomes uh, that are based on, on real knowledge and not on uh, conspiracy theories or not on, okay, what, uh, uh, I don't believe this could have happened or so-and-so said this, they, they have to be right. Um, this is, this is a very challenging period we're in. And that's really kind of the focus of the show today is that to say that while we may be moving for, toward a new presidential administration here, that this will eventually all work out and be resolved through this election process and through this pandemic, We've seen some things about our society and uh, about uh, people, and I'll, I'll point some other things out here in, in, in other segments today, uh, but that, that question uh, evidence-based outcomes, that question uh, reason, that question fact, because there's the unwillingness to accept to accept that because of belief, because of you're just saying, well, I believe this had to have happened. So it has to be right. The danger there is that if you, if you take facts out of this, if you take evidence out of this, then what determines truth is power. And this is what Ludus points to in his conclusion. Uh, he says here, in the absence of reason, governments will function purely on power. And that's dangerous. That's one of the things that was of great concern with our founders in addressing the abuse of power and addressing government in and of itself becoming powerful to the point that it can tell you what you should believe. It can tell you that this is the outcome. Uh, rather than standing there over against any claim like that is facts, is reason, and looking at the evidence and looking at uh, what is actually happening, and uh, from a, a base of knowledge, engaging with that, and from that, being able to make decisions, being able to move forward. Uh, and, and that, again, is what we see as a challenge very much going on right now, that, that if this persists, it could mean very challenging years and months, uh, or I should say months and years and decades ahead for us, 
in this country where we have uh, uh, people who are not willing to accept the outcome that they don't want, even though it's based on evidence. So we've got to look at this and, and think about it in terms of what, how do we get to conclusions? How do we, how do we resolve this? How do we, where are the answers here in terms of our ability as human beings to be able to engage with these significant issues like this, to focus on, on evidence, to focus on facts, to, to do our own work sometimes, not to have someone else do it for us and then tell us, okay, this is what this is. I mean, I know when we're looking at science, we get into so many technical areas and challenging areas and fields, but on the other side of it, when we're looking at uh, an election and we're looking at that outcome and we're looking at it across diverse populations and diverse states and so on, uh, it becomes uh, very evident is if we look into it. I mean, I saw here this past week in social media, a post going around uh, that showed the states that were in contention in this election, the, the ones that came down to be very close, and it showed the number of registered voters in one column, and then it showed the number of people who voted in another column. And what was of concern about that, of course, and the reason why it was being posted was that the number who voted was higher than the number registered. So what they were saying is that more than 100% of registered voters voted in this particular state. Well, when you look around at the election returns across the country and you can go state by state, you're going to see that no state hit at 100%. Uh, and in fact, I started doing a little bit of digging there because I thought, oh, well, it's, it's showing so many voters here. And I thought I remember seeing this data that showed, oh, there, there were even more and I looked, and, and, and on some of the states, the number of registered voters was the number in the last election in 2016. So they had not increased that number. They had not factored in uh, growth or change of population and more that may have registered to vote over against the number who actually voted in this election. And so here, again, we're using evidence. We're, there, there's the use of information here in a way that's not accurate. Uh, and so it's not a, you're not able to make a decision based on that. In fact, it's being used and twisted in a way to get people to think about uh, that, that and doubt the outcome, to question what has actually happened. And, and then to take that from a source and just believe it because it's there on the internet, it's there in social media. Well, that that chart, here it is, the number of registered voters, the number of people who voted this, somebody went and put this together, it has to be accurate when all it is is an attempt to get people to continue to question uh, these outcomes. But if you dig into the data, and this is where digital literacy is so important that we're questioning, we're looking at the things that are online and we're we're examining them and we're going, okay, well, is that accurate or not? And, and, and looking at it for ourselves in order to understand what is accurate, uh, what, what is an authority on a particular subject or topic. And so we see a lot of this happening. We've seen it all along with the pandemic. We've seen it in this election cycle. And I wanted to point out this essay, and I've posted it on my Facebook page for On Politics, uh, because I think it really raises some serious questions uh, about what is going on in our country and, and how it reflects the challenges that we have in getting away from a foundational approach to outcomes and, and to truth that has, has served us so well and has advanced our, our societies and the way we govern ourselves, and our emphasis on, on liberties, the role of education in our society, in that it's guided us to, to look, to question, to examine, to hypothesize, but to then experiment and see if that is accurate or not, to engage the data, uh, and, and to find out if this is uh, really uh, fact or not and then to make our decisions on that basis. Uh, not to throw all of that aside and to go back to where people were uh, in the Middle Ages where sources of authority were not experts in everything. They didn't, they didn't know everything, but, but they, would, they were authorities. And they would say they maintained power by answering those questions for people or sometimes not even allowing them to ask 
asks the questions. I mean, that's one of the, the benefits we have in our society today where we can ask those questions. We can query. We, we can ask for data. We can look at the information. And we, can, we want transparency. We want to be able to see what's happening because in this country, the people govern. Okay? The power is with the people. It is not uh, with those in, in individuals in, in office or otherwise who would tell you, well, no, I, I say it, I see it this way, uh, I see fact this way, or, or whatever is, is fact or not in that regard. And, and so you, mu- you have to believe me that this is what it is. So I want to, to leave that with you while I turn to another area of concern that I think reflects some of this, but it also reflects the, the political divisions uh, in our nation. And I think this is a very, a, a secondary challenge that is significant in terms of the direction of politics and government in the months and years ahead. It's, it's combined with this, uh, uh, this challenge to the way that we've thought and the way we've engaged in events and, and used data and, and evidence in order to arrive at the facts and the knowledge base by which we act. But you combine that within our society, and what we've seen in this recent election is a significant growth or polarization and partisanship uh, that is going to present some significant challenges going forward. And so for a little bit of information, I looked at a number of sources, but I'm coming to one article here that is data that was collected by the Pew Center in their fact tank. And this article, which I'll post again on Facebook as well, is 2020 election reveals two broad voting coalitions fundamentally at odds. So I'm putting this in a context of saying these are challenges to governing and politics as we go forward in the months and years ahead. And so what this data shows us is that in our society and going forward, we have two broad coalitions of voters who are deeply distrustful of one another and who fundamentally disagree over policies, plans, and even the very problems that face the country today. And we see this in the election. We have, uh, what, close to 150 million people that voted in this election. Uh, the, the, even the four or five million votes that separated Biden from Trump in the popular election but again, the two highest totals for any candidate uh, in the history of an election. And now we see the, the challenges that will follow because of that, that polarization. So I want to point out some areas of data here that show the extent of that polarization. So one is over the pandemic. I mean, going into the election, the thought here was that uh, the pandemic was going to have a huge impact on the outcome, and it was going to have a huge impact on voters, and some were even predicting a landslide uh, for Biden, uh, but that was not the case. In fact, uh, 82% of registered voters who supported Biden said before the election that the pandemic would be very important to their vote. Okay, so that was high among Democrats, but 24% of registered voters who supported Trump said the same. So now we put that in the context of post-election, and we see that we have almost a 60 percentage point divide between uh, the, the, the impact of the pandemic uh, on voting. Uh, so, so quite significant. I mean, this has a lot to do with depending on how uh, Congress is set up, whether Senate, the Senate Republicans remain, maintain a majority, and the House, and especially policy going forward in addressing uh, the pandemic. And of course, some of that may be aided by vaccines uh, that will soon be readily available uh, in in the months uh, ahead. But you still, again, when you see the electorate, you see a tremendous divide here. So that's the first issue. I have seven different ones here that show how divided our electorate is. The, The second one, Biden and Trump coalitions fundamentally differ over racial inequality and law enforcement. So around three quarters of registered voters who supported Biden, so that's 76%, said that racial and ethnic inequality would be very important to their vote. Okay, so again, very high among Democrats or supporters of Biden. Only 24% of Trump supporters said this. So now this was data that was gathered before the election, but I'm, 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 
highlighting this given the, the turnout, the turnout for both candidates, that we have to look at this seriously in terms of partisanship and where the focus is. And, and as the beginning of this article pointed out, it's two broad coalitions of voters who are deeply distrustful of one another. We'll see that in the data in a moment and who fundamentally disagree over policies, plans, and even very pro the, the, the problems that face the country today. So we move on to another area. The two sides are miles apart when it comes to more general questions about race. 74% of Biden voters said it is a lot more difficult to be a black person in this country than a white person, a view shared by only 9% of Trump voters a very much a divide here on issues of race. Climate change, 68% of Biden voters said that climate change would be very important to their vote. Trump voters, only 11%. So again, another point of divide. And, and we need to think about this in the context of a Biden administration and the policy focus and where, where that will be and what will be the signature issues and who will be appointed to what positions in the cabinet. We need to look at all of this because this will have an impact on these policy issues moving forward. And it, it will have an impact, especially if we see in this special election in Georgia, depending on where the Senate ends up. And if we have a divided Congress, how will they be able to move forward on some of these issues, knowing that their representative constituents, depending on how they voted in this last election, uh, are, are there, there's this much of a, a, a divide among them. Uh, the fifth one is on the economy uh, and, and really the, the, the issues related to the pandemic and the economy. So with businesses still shuttered in many parts of the country, 84% uh, of Trump voters uh, said that the economy would be the top voting issue for them. 66% of Biden voters, so two-thirds, a little closer margin, under uh, 20 percentage points. But even with that, there was uh, some disagreement, broad disagreement, on the way to move forward. How do you move forward in the pandemic and address these economic issues? The overwhelming consensus among Democrats, 94%, was that the more effective way to help the U.S. economy recover is to significantly reduce coronavirus infections to a level where more people feel comfortable. 49% of those who supported Trump agreed with that, but 50% said that the more effective approach is to open more stores, schools, and workplaces, even if there hasn't been a significant reduction in infections. So almost a 50, is a 45% gap there. In, in terms of views on how to approach economic issues in relation to the pandemic. Now, one area, and this one, while we can say, okay, here's one area of agreement, it, it still doesn't bode well. It, it looks at this partisan gap, this polarization, and really sh shows how entrenched it is. So overwhelming majorities of both Biden and Trump supporters said that a victory by the other candidate would lead to lasting harm to the nation. Nine in 10 Biden voters, so 90% of Biden voters said this about the prospect of a Trump victory, and 89% of Trump voters, so almost even, 89, 90% said that a victory by the other candidate would lead to lasting harm to the nation. I mean, that, that, that really brings it home in showing that divide and showing the challenges that we're seeing in this. If the point of agreement in terms of the election and its outcomes is that it's going to harm the nation if the other candidate wins. So the last area, and just to summarize, to bring this to a conclusion here. So seven different areas, one we have agreement on, and that is the harm the other candidate will have if they win the election. Uh, but this other one was a prospect of political compromise uh, is a, a dearth of shared facts and information. So Pew Research Center has been in this for a long time and looking at the trust about and views about the media and so on. But what this showed in, in the survey before the election, 85% of U.S. adults said Biden and Trump supporters 
disagree not only over plans and policies, but also over basic facts. Okay, so here we have some challenges because you have one side looking at the other saying that, okay, the facts that they follow and that they believe in are not the same as ours. 85% said that tr Biden and Trump supporters disagree not only over plans and policies, but also over basic facts. There, there's a divide here. There's a divide here uh, and, and some challenges here in terms of how people uh, look at issues that are going on, how they understand them, how they engage with information, how they receive information, and then process that and look at whether it, is it evidence-based or not. But there's also a problem here in terms of the political divide, the divide between what we saw with this election, two very, very uh, strong coalitions. Okay? When you have over 70 million votes in both for both candidates, but two very strong and broad coalitions of voters who are distrustful of one another, who disagree over policies and plans, and even disagree over what the significant problems are today and how we address them. I think this is going to be evident in governance, in politics and policy going forward. Uh, it will especially be the case if we have divided government uh, because it will be on display in terms of Congress and Congress in terms of the president. And it will be what will define uh, these next two years leading up to the midterm election and, and how we're able to address the critical needs and issues of our nation today uh, through our process of governance. A lot to think about, a lot to ponder in looking ahead uh, a lot of uncertainty, as, as we always have with this great experiment, uh, but also uh, some, some difficult things to, to think about in terms of how we engage individually in this and how, as a society, uh, we approach the work of self-governing, of the people uh, being the ones who hold the power, and with that power from a foundation of knowledge and engagement with real issues and real information, try to make the right decisions going forward uh, to meet our needs and our challenges. We're gonna take a short break and we'll come back and look at some more outcomes of this election. So more on politics coming up. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State, and we're glad you're joining us today. We just had that first uh, segment of the show, if you missed that, talking about some of the challenges to politics and governance going forward. And I invite you to check that out on SoundCloud. If you missed that, you can go to SoundCloud and look up On Politics with Eric Morrow and uh, be able to engage with those critical issues that uh, I think are very foundational, looking ahead to how all this may work or may not work uh, in terms of politics and governance uh, in our country. As we have last week, and we turn to it again this week, we are looking at the impact of the election. And I spent that first half talking more in general terms about the nation as a whole. But in the second half of the show, I want to look at the, uh, some, uh, some of the impact on Texas. Last week, we had talked about uh, the turnout among uh, Hispanic voting in South Texas and what the thought was about Texas maybe turning more blue, which it, it did not although we saw some areas that changed slightly, uh, but turnout had a tremendous impact on that as well. And one of the questions that came up was what is actually happening in South Texas? And one of the things that was so surprising was in Zapata County, which Clinton won by 33 points in 2016, 
uh, it flipped red and went for Trump. And we saw that a trend all the way up and down the Texas-Mexico border. Trump won 14 of the 28 counties that Clinton nearly swept in 2016 uh, and won by an average of 33 percentage points were for Biden that was narrowed to just 17 points. So what happened? Are we, are we seeing a, a political realignment? The Texas Tribune gave this some attention in an article that I will uh, post on the uh, Facebook page. Uh, but I think there's some interesting issues here that are going to be the challenge for those of us that look at these trends in politics and voting in Texas going forward. And some of those factors are already coming out in some survey work that's being done in that area and looking why, at why people voted the way they did. Uh, one of those was the statement by Biden in the debate, but also the potential policy impact if he moves forward with uh, green energy policies, because you have lots of people employed in the oil and gas business in Texas. And so this article points that out, that uh, uh, oil and gas related jobs have declined and that's having an impact uh, on people and jobs and certainly has on South Texas. And another area that was a, a, a point of connection here is related to the connection or the relationship or similarities, I should say, of Hispanic heritage uh, of the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas and the uh, the, the areas or the strongholds in rural communities across the country that Trump connected with. And we saw that again in the vote and in the turnout in this election. And uh, several have pointed out, and it's pointed out in this article, that people in these regions of South Texas, it, the, the, the culture is, is uh, homogenous, it's deeply religious, it's pensively patriotic, socially conservative, and hurting economically, just to quote the article. And here we have uh, a, a bundle of issues that align much more with the messaging that Donald Trump had and how he campaigned, not just in 2016, but also uh, in, in 2020, in a way that connected with these populations. Another one was along the, the line of defunding law enforcement agencies and that messaging that was was linked uh, by Republicans to Democrats, but also was the message of, of, of some Democrats. Of, and, and that hit home as well uh, with concerns about protection, especially along uh, the border uh, region. And you had Trump coming out, condemning protesters, backing law enforcement, and that really connected uh, with voters uh, in South Texas, and, and significantly so to see the swing that happened uh, that led to the outcomes uh, that we saw with this election. Uh, also, and this was another thing that's pointed out culturally, that, that 2020 uh, was a Trump-specific phenomenon because of the, of the person and who he is. And so one, uh, one person who has discussed this, uh, actually U.S. Representative Vicente Gonzalez of McAllen, who won re-election, but he, he was quoted in this article as saying Hispanics, especially Mexican-Americans, they like his machismo, his bravado. Uh, it's like all-star wrestling, Trump style, Gonzalez said. It fits perfectly with the South Texas Tejano person. So there, there's more information and data coming out about this uh, to show that that there were just multiple points of connection, not just culturally, not just uh, politically, uh, in terms of, of conservatism as well, but also uh, in terms of the critical issues and how voters in Texas, specifically Hispanic voters, saw those issues uh, that, that swung some of those areas that were considered democratic strongholds uh, to Trump uh, for this election. It also, it also helped in looking ahead and, and in influencing really the outcomes of this election and the way politics may go in Texas for the next decade. Uh, now, whether this is a, a phenomenon, a Trump-specific phenomenon, as, as Representative Gonzalez said, or not, it will be interesting to see in two years or four years in terms of how Hispanic voters in the state uh, align with specific candidates, uh, especially in the next presidential election, because it, it it's interesting in looking at how this uh, continues to keep Republicans 
in Texas uh, have the majorities that they do in the legislature, uh, have control of statewide offices, and how they will approach these areas of the state. How will they engage with these voters? How will they uh, follow off of what Trump has done and being successful in areas like this, even though he, he certainly won the state, but he lost the national election? How will it impact uh, their engagement uh, with these voters and what issues they'll connect with uh, in order to win uh, statewide and for those who may be running for national uh, office. So this is an area that we'll continue to follow because it's always a shifting area in Texas politics. I remember talking about this issue a decade ago and the questions about will Texas turn blue or not. And, and here you have phenomenon, here you have things that happen, here you have an election, you have specific issues at that point in time that connect with people uh, that lead to them to vote in a, in a particular way that was really unexpected. It was, it was very much expected that uh, Democrats would retain control, especially in terms of the presidential election, uh, but uh, that was not the case. And it's, so it's interesting to look at that and see what is happening in Texas in politics. For the final segment of the show today, I wanna to go back and revisit the 25th Congressional District of Texas which was one that we looked at in depth. I had done an interview on this in, uh, in a newspaper article in the Austin American Statesman where we talked about if this district was representative of the nation as a whole in terms of moving to the strength of urban voting over rural voting. Uh, I think we saw from this election that, that it's much more complex than that. Although we saw urban areas across the country go Democrat, uh, we still, see some other uh, challenges as well in understanding this and, and understanding the divide or the, the role of suburban voting and so on. And, and this district, I think, is a good example of that, especially for Texas in relationship to turnout. I mean, we can't forget that turnout was one of the critical, very critical elements uh, in this election. And I think turnout uh, helped to create the margin that we saw in Texas 24th Congressional District. And if you remember, uh, because this touches on part of Erath County, if you remember back or if you, you looked at the outcome, it was Roger Williams, the incumbent, running against Julie Oliver, the Democratic Party candidate. And of course, Oliver ran against Roger Williams in the previous election uh, in 2016 and was even closer uh, at that point in time. Uh, I'm sorry, 2018. In 2018, the divide between the votes, still significant, 53.5% of voters for Williams, 44.8% for Oliver. In this election, that margin increased slightly. 55.9% of voters voted for Roger Williams, 42.1% for, were for Julie Oliver. Now, when we look at this district, which stretches from the western parts of Hayes and Travis County, Areas that, as we'll see in a, talk about in a moment, have are adjusting their orientation in terms of the majority of voters, but all the way up through a rural area that encompasses Burnett, Lampasas, Coriel, Hamilton, Bosque, Hill, Somerville, Johnson, and part of Erath County. In fact, a, a, about um, a little less than half of Erath County. This district, in, in terms of Johnson County, also reaches up into Burleson, of course, the suburbs of Fort Worth in southern Tarrant County. And this was the focus of the article and asking how this would swing, given the, the growth in the Austin area and Travis and Hayes County, uh, given the growth in Tarrant County, and whether these suburban areas in Texas would go the same direction as other suburban areas. And I think we saw a mixed message on that across the country. Uh, we can get into the data on that in a, in a future show. But I think in this election in Texas and in this district, we saw where there are areas that are growing. They're not growing as rapidly as other areas that we see. So the I-35 corridor, Dallas-Fort Worth extending down to Austin, and one of the interesting things to look at here is, is what happened in neighboring uh, Williamson County. Now, before I look at the data, I want to go back and several, uh, it was probably almost two years ago, and listening to the state demographer in Texas, who was focusing on the parts of the state or areas of the state that were growing the fastest. And those areas were that, that corridor, 
the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, Tarrant County, but also the area between just north of Austin, Georgetown, that area, of course, Harris County being one of the largest population centers in the state and in the country, San Antonio, that, that area filling in as well. Uh, the, the question here was how much would that growth influence voters to the west of that I-35 corridor? When we look at Williamson County, Williamson County in the presidential election went for Biden, but only by 4,000 votes, 1.4%, a very, very narrow margin. And that shows that that population growth in that area, that increase of the urban center, really influenced the outcome of that election in Williamson County. Cornyn still won. John Cornyn won running for U.S. Senator. He won Williamson County by three points. So very, very close margin. But Biden won president. Cornyn won as senator. But when we look at, at, at Burnett County, when we move to for just a little further west, the next county over, and we move up through these counties and we look at Johnson and some of the others have smaller populations like Bosque and, and Hamilton, but we look at the counties where you would think that, that the growth is, uh, the, the transition is happening, still these wide margins where you have Roger Williams winning with 75% of the vote or higher. So it was very clear that the outcome in those rural counties, but even the ones that have growing population. So let's take out the smaller ones like Coriel, Bosque, Hamilton, and so on. And let's look at the, the areas where the demographics are changing. If you move closer to Austin, of course, Travis County, yes. Of course, the, 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 the number vote and the support for it that was swinging to um, uh, Democrats has grown. Hayes County has been shifting, but very slowly. Uh, but again, not enough to offset those rural counties where turnout was good, where Roger Williams won by a, a very large percentage in many of those counties uh, and, and retained this seat and uh, showed that maybe Texas in some of these areas is not changing as rapidly. Uh, when we get outside of the urban and close suburban areas. Uh, but then on the other hand, I think it's, it's important to note that turnout, as we said in the beginning, had a tremendous impact on this. It also shows that redistricting has played a role. And this is the, the area that we have to be looking at going into the next legislative session coming out of the 2020 census and the role that states will have in, in a state that has a Republican-controlled legislature and how they will engage uh, with these areas that are transitioning. So it's one thing to look at Williams District and see it, the margin by which he won and say, okay, wow, this, this is not changing that rapidly. It's, it's held for uh, now a number of elections, uh, even though the margin has shrunk some, it's not, not as significant. But then when you look at a, a Williamson uh, in Bell County area, as you look at that I-35 corridor where population growth is happening and how that is going to be adjusted in terms of districting to try to either maintain control of seats that are very close, that many thought would not swing Democrat, or to, to try to swing them back in the other direction. That's the politics that happen in redistricting post-census, post an election like this, where now the task before the state legislature is to draw new maps, maps for the Texas House and Senate and maps for the Texas representation in the House of Representatives in the U.S. Congress. So this is very interesting data that we're looking at here. I'm going to be presenting more of this as we go through the months ahead, and we're looking at the changes that have happening or are happening or not so much as we try to understand uh, the political dynamics, uh, the electorate in certain parts of the state, as well as the impact that this will have on both government in Texas through the Texas legislature, as well as in uh, the U.S. Congress. So I want to thank you for joining us today. I just want to remind you that you can go to Facebook. I'm going to put up some articles that connect all of this together that relate to the segments that I had today so that you can do your own reading and look at the information and go to the sources that they're using as well and looking at the data and the outcomes of the elections. So that's the Facebook page is On Politics with Eric Morrow. 
Again, I'll remind you that you can listen on Spotify or Apple for podcasts, download the show, take it with you, listen when you have the chance, or go to SoundCloud, and that's On Politics with Eric Morrow, and the shows go up on SoundCloud after they broadcast uh, each week. As we look to the weeks ahead, uh, the goal on the show here is to bring back some interviews now to have some people who can offer reflection on different aspects of the election and the transition process, looking at well, what's happening uh, with a Biden administration as it's coming together and what does that mean in the, the weeks and months and years ahead that as he takes office and as we see uh, the decisions and the directions that, that he will go. I really close today kind of reminding you of what I started the show with. I think there's a couple of things that are critical uh, that we all watch. Uh, one is this polarization. It's this fact that we are so deeply divided in this country to the point that the only thing that we agree on is our concern about uh, the other group's person winning and having power in public office. That the Pew data clearly showed that, and, and that is a significant challenge. Uh, that's a challenge that has become so intense uh, that we, we really need to give it attention. The other is the, the, the challenge before us of engaging with issues and the facts in looking at our sources. Where is this coming from? What is the validity of it? What is this data? How can, can we can confirm this data and that it's accurate? And this means sometimes moving beyond the media. This is what we teach in government classes that media makes you aware of things. But beyond that, you have to go and search and learn and engage with the information uh, that will make you a more informed citizen and will help you to make decisions that are based on fact, not on the belief that, okay, well, this person said it, uh, I'll accept that. Uh, again, that's power. That's, and that's the kind of power when it comes to government that we have to hold in check and we have to watch. Just because someone's in power uh, doesn't mean that they're telling you uh, what is based on fact and what is has evidence. And so we have to be the ones that are willing to raise those questions, to search things out, to ask for evidence, to ask for transparency, uh, so that, that we can hold our elected officials accountable and make the decisions uh, that we need to make for the direction of our state and our country. Again, thank you for joining me today. We'll look forward to being with you again next week right here on KTRL 90.5 FM on politics. This has been a Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.